Well, good morning. Uh, today we have the, the joy of turning to uh, John's Gospel, chapter 3, and starting in verse 16, uh, all the way through to 21. <clears throat> and this is what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Amen. I have to say, very often it's very easy for us to forget when we look at our Bibles, when we hold our Bibles, even when we read our Bibles, it is very easy to forget that our Bible is a love story. I'd say it is the greatest love story. Sometimes we forget. We see it in a different light. Uh, we see it as uh, a book of advice, a book of rules, uh, a book full of stories. Uh, and though we are wise to be guided by the wisdom and mindful of the law and inspired by the narrative, the Bible is, first and foremost, a love story. The story of a king who comes to rescue the one he loves. The king who would take off his crown, who would get up from his throne, who would go out and seek and save the one he loves, the one that could not save herself. And he goes and, of course, is willing to give his life to save her. That's the message of this book. As we read more, as we discover more and more about this king of kings, we see the one who looks at us with such love that he was willing to die in order for us to be free. And of course that is quite well expressed rather succinctly in this incredibly well-known verse in John 3.16. There's a reason that this is the one verse that is possibly known the best, uh, that is referred to the most often, because it manages to express that love in a verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. It's a well-known text. It's a text that we probably all know really, really well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. We know it. But very often because we know it, the shock of it wears off. Uh, because we think we know this verse, because we know the words, because we, we hear the words so often, the awe that should come with that verse eludes us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. Uh, you know, to, to be fair, I could probably actually just use the time allotted to me reading that verse over and over again. <laughs> I, 
And I probably would. Uh, those of you who know me would know that I would probably do just such a thing. Because what a text. What a love is expressed in this text. This verse tells us of a truth that should shock us and, and overwhelm us. It's a remarkable text. It's, it's not one that can be said glibly. It's not a text that should leave us without our hearts leaping, our souls rejoicing. And indeed, it is slightly tempting for me just to, to finish now and to, to sit down. If only this incredible verse was better understood. Now, many of us, if not most of us, will know this verse off by heart. You know, we can repeat it without having to look it up. But the rest of this morning, I really want to answer one question, which is, what does this verse actually mean? You know, I'm always amazed at how God can teach us. Uh, even when we think we've learned everything there is to learn in a particular verse, the way that God can reach out and just teach us something. Uh, even when we've closed off our ears, when, when we think we've grasped all that there is in some sort of ill-judged self-satisfaction, I find this happens to me fairly often, <laughs> to be honest. You know, I've read these texts, I think I know these texts, and then I sit down and God tells me something about these texts that I was unaware of. And what a joy that is. I get really excited when I, when I find out something that I didn't know, and then I'm, I'm looking for an opportunity to tell somebody. So, here we are. I love the fact that God can still reach in to where I am. Uh, the, the way that I always describe it, um, I've had the, the, the incredible privilege of being able to, to study the things of God for, for, for two decades. Uh, to, to go and do theology, to go and do all these different things, to, to learn the languages and everything else. And so I study my Bible, I read my Bible, I seek after God in my Bible, and I do it all as often as I can. And so now, after two decades, I begin to feel that I am almost scratching the surface. How many of you ever feel like that sometimes? <laughs> no matter how much you do, that there's such depths in this text that we have yet to plumb. And... To be honest with you, um, a few months ago, I was reading this text. This text that I thought I knew, and God taught me something. And, and I got really excited. I, I got really bowled over, because it's a wonderful experience to have a verse given back to you. A verse that you think you know, and for it to actually speak anew. And it happened with this verse, John 3.16, as I said, possibly the best-known verse in the Bible. A verse I'd heard, I don't know how many times. A verse I'd heard preached on, I don't know how many times. But as I sat down, I was, I was reading um, uh, my, my, my Greek New Testament. I was reading John uh, in, in my Greek, and I was reading that way, and God hit me with something. And it was just one word that really leapt out, one tiny and Problematically, sometimes we think it's an insignificant word. Um, the Greek word auto, um, it's found at the very beginning of the Greek text. It's, it's what we translate as the word so. It's a tiny word, two letters, so. A word which actually, how we translate that, how we understand that word in that verse, radically alters how we understand that verse and how we apply that verse into our lives. And that's where I'm going to focus this morning. You see, when we read, for God so, in both the Greek and the English, that small common word, um, we can sometimes put an emphasis on it. Uh, like sometimes uh, when my children come to me and say, I am so hungry. You know, they really want to emphasize the, 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 the hunger that they are gripped with. You know? 
Um, or, for example, when I look at them and I say, I am so tired. You know, I want to emphasize the degree of fatigue that is assailing me at that moment in time. And so we emphasize the word, uh, we emphasize so to, to make it a larger thing, a bigger thing, a more volume to what is being felt. And therefore, when we come to this text, we read, for God so loved the world. And so we use it to describe a volume of love. We understand it to mean that God so loved the world that he was compelled to act. It therefore makes us think that this verse is talking about a quantity of love, as if there was a particular volume, an amount of the love of God. And because of that, because it existed to such a degree, the son died. The problem, however, <laughs> is that that's not how the Greek word works, and that's actually not how the, the Old English word used to work either. Um, it's something of, 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 uh, of a more recent development. That that's how we would understand the word soul. It was never the intention of John the author, or indeed the centuries in between until now, that we would read that this verse talks about a quantity of God's love. The fact that God loves us more than we can imagine, that is a given. So we need a verse on that, to be honest. <laughs> that is a given. We can see that through the whole of the Bible. That's not what's going on here. It's not trying to imply that if God loved us just a little less, he probably wouldn't have bothered. That's, that, that's not the point. It's not to talk about the volume of love. Instead, this verse is here to teach us what love really is. You see, I suppose the way that I would translate it now, in order to avoid how we tend to read it these days, the way that it was intended to be read is this. In this way God loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Now, allow me to explain the significance of this. You see, when we have God so loved the world, we imagine a volume of love, a great, enormous, giant volume of love uh, that would precipitate the action. And so we say, you know, God loves a lot. The problem, though, with human beings is that we then define what love is. And we say, oh yeah, God's got a lot of that. We say, oh, I know what love is. I've, I've seen it on TV. I've experienced it. Or, you know, I know what love is. And we think that that is what God feels. We think that that limited definition of what we can grasp is the love of God. That's a problem. Because we say we know what love is and we project that onto God. The problem is that we get to define love. Whatever we think love is, in that moment we define that and say God's got that to a large degree. Now I'll be entirely honest, that's above my pay grade to define love. <laughs> that is not my department. That is so above me. It is up to God to define what love really is. And I have to try and catch up with it. But human beings have always had a problem with God being the arbiter. We prefer the darkness of our own rebellious wisdom rather than the light of his truth. Um, Adam and Eve decided that they would wrest from him the right to, to decide good and evil. They wanted to be like God. They wanted to have the right to say, well, I want this to be good. I want this to be evil. You are not going to get to decide. 
That's why this sin is called rebellion and not fruit larceny. <laughs> you know? It's not just that we take the fruit. They, they are saying, no, we are going to decide good and evil no longer for you. And to be entirely honest, that has been the theme of humanity ever since. We don't want God to decide. We want to take with our own strength rather than be elevated by his hand. And so when we come to this verse, we say God loves a lot, but we will decide what love is. We will restrict it to our experiences. We will restrict it to what we want. And that paltry version of love is what we say God has. But praise God, we don't get to define love. Not really. Now, as an aside, there are times that God will say to us, I want you to imagine the greatest love a human being is capable of. Because that's as far as you can go. I want you to imagine that and realize that's a bit like me, but I'm more. Uh, so, for example, um, the example of um, the mother's love for that newborn child, um, Isaiah 49.15, uh, where he says, you know, imagine that love, imagine that bond, that newborn baby, the, the mother, the look on her face, you know, and she's looking at that child. Now, we know, because human beings are human beings, it doesn't work every single time, we know there are broken examples. But we can imagine what that should be. We can imagine that great example of love. And so again, he says, imagine the love of a father. Uh, Jeremiah 31 verse 9. You know, he says, imagine it. Now we uh, all know of examples of terrible fathers. We know examples where love is not being shown. But we can imagine, we can know that that should be one of the greatest loves a human being is capable of. When the father looks at his child. We know what that should be. And God says, okay, imagine that. Uh, sometimes, and actually very frequently, he describes himself as a spouse. Um, Isaiah 61.10, uh, Revelation 21.9. you got that idea of, this, of, of the love of the spouse. Because again, uh, we know too many broken examples. We know too many uh, times when the love is not shown. But we know what it should be. We know the example of that. That greatest love that a human being could have for another human being. And he says, imagine that because that's the best you can do. But know that I am more. In each instance, he takes the strongest bonds, the most profound love a human being is capable of. And he says, okay, imagine that, but know that I am more. I am not the broken, inconsistent reality that you are aware of. But when you see the mother and the newborn, the father with his son, the groom and his bride, the absolute best that you are capable of, know that at least that's in the right direction. So hold on to those pictures, hold on to those examples, and know they are a shadow of God. Uh, the Hebrew people were aware of this, uh, to be fair. They, they were very particularly aware of this. Um, you see, we've got a problem with the word love itself. We, we devalue love all too quickly and all too readily. Um, the, the example I like to, to try and, and, and say would be, I mean, for example, I mean, I love my wife. I, I love my children, and if I'm honest with you, I love biscuits. But the problem is that I have demeaned the bond and the passion that I have for my wife because I use, I use the same word 
with a biscuit. We devalue love. And the Hebrew people aware of this, they had lots of different words for love. <laughs> they, kind of, they had one for the love of biscuits, to be fair. Uh, they also had the one that would be uh, the love for, for, your, for your wife. Uh, they would have uh, the love of things that get you very excited and you can overflow. There's lots of words. But even with all those different words, they recognized what they needed was they had to have a whole separate word for the love of God. Just in case we accidentally thought that they were the same. Uh, just in case we thought, well, I know this one. Wow, that's just the same as that one. So, no, no, no. God's love is so big, so beyond our comprehension, it needs a separate word. I, I love that, actually, to be entirely honest. Uh, it's a word some people will know. That chesed is the love of God. And it's really important that we know that this is a separate thing, that this is far greater and far more powerful than we can actually imagine. Chesed is the love that brings about creation. It's the love that breathes life into Adam. It it saw him walk with man after the fall. It sees him repeatedly rescue our broken race. It sees him reach out to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. It sees him comforting Hagar in the desert. Naomi in her grief. Leah in her isolation. It is the word that lies behind the children of Israel being rescued from Egypt. It's what motivates God's utter hatred and enmity towards suffering and sin and death. Hesed will not allow us to be alone. Hesed will not be uh, able to, to see hope extinguished. And so Hesed leads to the cross. It leads to an empty tomb. It is the love that first loved us long before we were ever born. It's the love that provides for us a future that is without any doubt, a future without tears. It is the reason that he is the one that will not let us go. It is immeasurable, it is incomparable, and it is unbreakable. That's why it has a separate word. <laughs> that the love of God is what is being referred to in John 3.16. And so it's not an opportunity for us to think, oh, well, this is love, we'll project that onto God. That's that's not what is going on here. We do not get to reduce this verse into thinking that God loves us a lot. The verse is not actually there simply for us to feel grateful, though we should. You see, the problem is when we say that God so loved the world, is that we're saying, God really, really loves me. Full stop. He does really, really love me. (laughs) And he does really, really love you with chesed. He really, really does. There's not a full stop there. This verse is not simply about our gratitude. This verse is to try and explain to us, look, this is love. This is what love really is. It defines love. That's why the same author later on in 1 John 3.16 says this, It is by this we know what love is, that he laid down his life for us. His death on the cross shows us what love is. Which means that when we look back into the Gospel of John, we hear something different. In this way God loved the world. He gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. See, when we read 
in this way God loved, we're halted in our tracks. It's not enough to simply say, I'm loved. I'm quite special, really. <laughs> that's, that's not what's going on here. There's no room for us to imagine what love is and hold it up, expecting God to measure up to our definition. This verse tells us we don't get to define love. This verse tells us not that God so loved the, the amount, and rather it says, this is love. So we can't imagine love in our own image. We can't base it on our experiences. We can't equate it in our perception. We have the perfect example of love, and that trumps everything else. You want to know what love is? What real, true love is? Well, here it is. The only begotten Son sacrificed and sacrificing it all to you. That he would die an agonizing, lonely death. That the immortal would taste death for you. Now, that change, and that word, has some rather significant implications. It has a rather significant application when we then come to think, well, what does this really mean for me now? You see, now we have a definition of love. We have a, a bar to measure ourselves against. It means that we're not just simply grateful, but we're to apply this into our lives. We cannot say to someone that we love them, but then not live sacrificially. We can say to God, God, I love you, but then not actually sacrifice those things in our life which hold us back. To get rid of those favorite sins that we might return to. We can't say that we love if it's not what we see here. Because it's not love. Uh, later on, we find that this becomes something of a challenge. It is not just enough to say that God loves a lot, uh, and therefore, you know, we're, we're grateful. It says, this is love. Do you measure up to that love? And then there's this sharp challenge. There's a bite, as it were, that comes in here. Later on in the Gospel of John, in chapter 15, verses 12 to 13, it says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has known than this, that so and lay down his life for his friend. What a calling that is. We are called to love with the love of God. Now, just a few moments ago, I was telling you that we can't even imagine chesed. I was telling you you can't even begin to get your heads around this love of God, this chesed, this thing that needs a separate word. And yet here we're told that we are to love other people with this very same love. And I'm thinking, that's impossible. We can't possibly do that. And then I read my Bible, and I read about characters in the Bible. Now, I'll just choose one. Uh, naturally, it's going to be in the Old Testament. Uh, but I'm going to choose Ruth. I'm going to choose Ruth as a wonderful example of this. Uh, Ruth is described not just simply showing care or concern to Naomi, her broken mother-in-law, who she reaches out to. When she sacrifices her future in order to care for her mother-in-law, it is described later on as chesed, as the love of God. You see, Ruth is the means by which the love of God reaches Naomi. In her loneliness and brokenness, in her bitterness, in her anger, 
the love of God reaches her through Ruth. Amazing. The love of God reaches Naomi because of the sacrificial love of her daughter-in-law. You see, when Ruth steps out in faith, I would say it was comparable to Abram when he was called upon to leave his home. The only difference is that he's supported by a direct call from God. He has a wife, family, servants, and incredible wealth. Ruth, by comparison, is willing to stand alone. She's not even wanted by Naomi. There's been no dramatic call from God, no booming voice, no Damascus road, no flashing lights. There's not a whale to swallow her and deposit her at the right place. No burning bush, no meeting God face to face in order to receive his promises and assurances about her future. No human has come to her aid. She has no support. Her decision logically results in her isolation and destitution for the rest of her life. Ruth breaks with her family, her tradition, her country, the faith of her parents. And instead of seeking security, which she could have had back in her father's house, she walks with Naomi, who offers nothing. Well, in that regard, I'd say that Ruth somewhat eclipses Abraham in his uh, uh, going to the call. Ruth sacrifices everything with no hope of receiving anything, not even gratitude in return. And in so doing, the Bible says that she has shown not just care, not just concern, not even just love, but she showed I said, in that moment, she was the means by which the love of God reached a broken person. I think that's amazing. She is a, a mirror to the love of God. She acts as his hands when she embraces Naomi. And so we see this unstoppable love of God reflected in his people, those who would love as God loves. We are called to be more and more like him, to take on his godliness, to, to be a reflection of him. A people of Hesed, able to reach out, to be his voice, to be his hands, to people who do not know his love. Do not even know what true love really is. In John 3.16, we have the definition of love, and it is a wonderful thing to receive. It is truly wonderful to be on the receiving end of a love so spectacular, I cannot even imagine it. But it's also a challenge. And that's the important thing on reading this verse right. It's not just simply enough to say how wonderful it is that we're loved. There is a challenge to then go and love likewise. We have... In God, in Christ on the cross, the perfect example of love. Something to aim for. Jesus, in uh, John 15, takes it further. And he says we're to love one another with that same love. And that remarkable challenge is echoed in 1 John 3.16, which, which I mentioned earlier. Actually, the whole verse says this. By this we can know what love is. That he laid down his life for us. And so... We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. When I get to heaven, I'm convinced of this, when I get to heaven, I'm going to see God. And he's going to be sitting there, and I'm going to be there, and he's going to look at me, and he's going to ask me two questions. 
going to say, did you love me? And as you know, you know when I see him there, you know for what I'm going to say. I'm going to say, yes! <laughs> yes, I loved you! A hundred percent! I mean, I was, I was working on getting a hundred percent of the time, but yes, you know, hundred percent, I love you. And then he's going to ask a second question. Did you love my people? I don't get to stand and say, look, God, did you see the state of them? I mean, come on. Who could have done that, you know? I don't get to do that. I'm incredibly grateful that we don't receive love because we deserve it or have earned it. We simply receive it. and We are to be changed by it. And we are to reflect it and show it. That's what we are commanded to do. And said, has never been poured out on those who deserve it. So as I stand before God, I'm really hoping that my answer will be yes. <laughs> because of you. Uh, yes, because I let your love change me. Yes, because I let your love be reflected through my life. And what I'm hoping is that when I'm, I get to the end of my life and I kind of look back at my life and I look, oh look, look there, there at that moment... The love of God was being shown. Oh, uh, there's another one. The love of God being shown. So I could be the hands and the voice of God to the people who need it. So we could actually live up to this idea of Hesed being shown to other people through us. And so this morning, I exhort you, people of God, to see what true love really is, to see those around you, And to see that you should be the vehicle of that love to those people. That's the challenge of this verse. That's why that little word matters so much. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, as we come before you, we are in awe as to the scale of your love. uh, A scale that we cannot comprehend or grasp or imagine. And yet, it causes further amazement that you would allow us to be the vehicles of that love, that you would allow us moments in our life where we could really, truly, honestly reflect that love, your love to other people. We thank you, Lord, that the world doesn't need burning bushes or Damascus roads or anything else because you have us. And so, Lord, I pray before we see you face to face that we would have a life that is changed by you. We know that we cannot show this love. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would change us through that love. And from there, help us to reflect your love to the people who need it so much. We thank you that you define what love is. Not the world, not anything else, but you define it. But I pray, Heavenly Father, you'd enable us, help us, aid us in living up to it. I pray, O Lord, that now that we know what love is, we'd be able to show that our world who desperately need it. In Jesus' wonderful and precious name. Amen.